Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to two hundred dollars with Spot Me and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com/goals24. Banking services, debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Spot Me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. 
Okay, we know this feller, but it has been a long time since we've seen him. It was all the way back to the beginning of the year. It doesn't seem like it. Boy, this 2022 just flew by. Kenneth Shrupp is back. Uh, he does all kinds of PR consulting and stuff. He's also a Young Voices contributor. Going to talk a little education today. Kenneth, good to see you again, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me on again, Andrew. It's been a long time. Uh, it's good to see you. How's things out there on the left coast? Well, uh, we're, we're in for a new mayor, most likely, here in Los Angeles. Uh, overall, weather is lovely, but crime is up. Roads are falling apart. Homelessness is rampant. I'm happy that things can maybe be turned around. Yeah. Um, city council people are getting recorded. That kind of happened. That was a little bit of a mess. <laughs> um, let's Let's start there. California is always kind of on the edge of politics, good, bad, or indifferent. It just is. It's you know, the world's sixth largest economy by itself. It's very populous. You got LA, but then you got, you know, Inland Empire. Then you got NorCal, and SoCal, two places that couldn't be any more different if they wanted to be. You being in California, what kind of perspective does that get? We talk about East Coast, West Coast bias and everything from politics to sports to news coverage. What is the kind of the viewpoint of DC and that stuff from sitting out in LA right now? Because I got to imagine it's different. I know I lived in Vegas, just the time zone alone changes your perspective give me your perspective on what's going on in politics just real quick while you got you are you talking about on a national level um let's just let's just look at congress imagine you're a congressperson and you, you you're in virginia you're in new york you can take the train home every day if you want you can take that you can come visit your constituents whenever you want or you can even work mostly out of your home office if you're in california it's not really an option you have to be you rarely will come home or you'll rarely be in DC. Those are your two choices. Uh, what this lends itself to is extremely secure leadership that uh, doesn't really have to worry so much about primaries and can go campaign on ridiculous things. So it's no surprise that California's federal legislators are some of the most radical progressives in the country because they never really have to go home and they don't really have to answer to anyone. As long as they have the D next to their name, they're going to keep winning. So. Uh, <laughs> for asking what my perspective on Calif national politics to the ones of California, it's these, this is the consequence of a one-party state where you don't have ideas, bad ideas, sufficiently challenged by organized opposition. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective, and I appreciate you giving it, because we've been covering California a lot. Uh, labor regulation, uh, they're doing cryptocurrency regulation. They got vetoed for odd reasons, and things like that. It always seems to be California pushing the envelope on these things, and that's good perspective. Why? Let's talk a little education. You've been writing about education, something else that you know California's got a little different ideas on. I want to start with the big picture concept because we sure learned this before anyway, but COVID really drove the point home. Education if you're not having outcome-based education where it's what are these kids actually learning in the education system, there's no amount of money thrown at this system that's going to fix it. And what you're going to be writing about, what we're going to be talking about today is just another example of it. But big picture wise, you start looking at, you know, what the illness is, not just the symptoms. Money never, ever solves educational problems. In a lot of cases, it actually ends up making it worse, don't it? Exactly. I mean, there are a lot of countries that spend far less than we do. We spend the most per student, um, as far as I know. I might, I might be wrong on that. You might want to double check me. Um, but in California, for example, I mean, the United States, we spend more per student on public school than the average private school charges for tuition. And yet the outcomes are very, very different. Are you telling me that 
the private school really does have more money when the pri when the public schools spend more money and yet we're having such divergence of outcomes money is not the problem it's really how are we scoring these kids how are we engaging with parents how are we measuring success and what are we teaching them yeah you were writing in real clear education um it goes to the heart of this because it's where are you going to put your money now we know you know people that are advocates of school choice say hey we're going to fund the students not the system the system advocates are like well if you take money out of the system that hurts everybody there's good and bad points to all that there's overlap in the middle you highlighted something very interesting here where folks were talking about universal cash deposits and you took the point of view this really is going to kind of hurt everybody if it goes through the way some people are proposing it right now the hot idea among the right uh for a long time it was vouchers uh voucher vouchers didn't really take off like people wanted um now that now that now people say they support quote unquote school choice school choice can really mean anything you want it to mean i have school choice i can choose to send my kids to public school i can choose to send my kids to private school that's school choice uh today though people on the right are identifying school choice as temporarily identifying um as deciding to give people the money that the state would have otherwise spent on the public school and let them spend it on their own education spending um and that would be a defined amount per state uh however much everyone would get the same amount uh there are a lot of problems with this there are a lot of economic issues first of all and there are a lot of social issues and social issues are the more terrifying ones the economic ones uh are just going to be quite bad also when you create a universal subsidy for something you increase the price floor right so if you have a private school system like now where enrollments increase significantly in the aftermath of covid and parents are looking for new alternatives uh, these private schools are already at full capacity so let's say that you have a full private school you're charging ten thousand dollars a year and you learn that every single student of yours is going to get eight thousand dollars to spend on education right you don't have to exactly spend it on tuition but most of the esa money or education savings account they call them savings accounts to imply that you're it's you're saving it you're not it's coming from the government it's a deposit from the government let's let's get that out of the way that uh if you're just getting eight thousand dollars they know you're getting eight thousand dollars they're going to raise your tuition by eight thousand dollars because it's not costing them any extra it's not costing you any extra they're already full so what are you going to do not pay the eight thousand dollars and not have an extra seat for your kid it's it's absurd to think that this is not going to have any impact on prices. We did the exact same thing with colleges. When you created universal student loans, suddenly tuition skyrocketed because you created quality and price agnostic demand. Um, surprisingly, though, there was no such problem when these account when these lo student loans were available only to lower and lower middle class people, people who really needed the money. The problem is when you make these things universal. Once soon as it became universal, tuition went from increasing just 11% faster than inflation to many times faster than inflation. And yeah, the same thing will happen with ESAs. Yeah, Ken Shrub joining us. You mentioned it. The keyword here is universal means you're giving it to everybody. We all know, you know, this big boy adult conversation here. We all understand that if it's not universal, then you got to parse it out. Now you're going to have some type of a means test one way or the other. You're going to have some kind of discrimination one way or the other. 
And that's where people get really uncomfortable in education because now it feels like you're picking and choosing who gets this money. So this feels like one of those things where it's an either or. And, you know, a lot of things you want to try to reach middle ground on. There doesn't seem like there's going to be a middle ground in here because if you go for a middle ground from universal or not doing it at all, you're just going to end up in picking who gets money and who doesn't. And there's not going to be any kind of equitable, fair and or non-conflicting way to do that, is there? No, it's really hard to choose who who is needy at that line. There's a family making with a household income of a million dollars a year, two kids. Uh, maybe they probably don't need that subsidy, but a family of maybe one hundred fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year with four kids in San Francisco, you might on paper look like you're making really good money, but that money doesn't go very far out there. You might be really pinched. So how do you even? I don't. I don't know how you decide who gets and who doesn't get this subsidy. It's it, it's insane. Yeah. And we, you know, it's one thing to talk about these things in theory and on paper, like, oh, this would really work. We got an example here. You brought it up in your piece. We're going to link to it again. Read the whole piece. He's got a lot of stuff linked in here, too. You want to read all the link stuff. They actually did this down in Arizona. How did it go when the Arizonans tried it? So this Arizona universal uh, subsidy is is newer. Uh, It was just passed in July. It was it was by it was limited to students with. financial need only uh now it's been expanded to any 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 family and any student uh as could be expected most of the people signing up already had their kids in private school so i don't really know i I think it was 70 percent, 70 to 80 percent. it was one of those two uh already have their kids in private school so it's only really improving access for 30% of people. That That's still a meaningful improvement, but you're spending all of this money without really significantly increasing enrollment. There's also been academic studies within the United States of areas that have tried this. And let me bring up this quote for you uh, that, that really is shocking. Universal subsidies, quote, produce price increases, but no change in enrollment. And what's making things even worse is that Every single dollar of subsidies raises private school income by more than $1, which means that tuition increases by more than the subsidy because you increase demand so much. It's economics do not work out. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad because with Chime Checking Account, Features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If they're good economics for education, because here's the problem we get into, especially with public education, it's become such, you know, I think COVID proved how we treat education despite the rhetoric. It's a giant jobs program. It's a giant funding program. It's a lot of bureaucracy. How are we ever going to separate that back out? Because until you do that, the money pipeline, and that's what bureaucracy basically revolves around. It's a money pipeline. That's that's the issue. That's the money pipeline. So anytime you start trying to move money anywhere else, you're going to get pushback. It feels entrenched and it feels even more entrenched when you look at programs like this is like, hey, the entrenchment's actually going to take this what on paper might be a good idea and actually amplify the problem. So there's a few traps that I probably want to explore with this. The first is uh, what happens with public funding where with with, uh, with public schools. Um, up until 1965, there was very little federal funding for public schools. In 1965, the Department of Education was able to centralize materials for students and training for teachers uh, in exchange for creating funding, especially in low-performing school areas. As you could expect, though, all that federal money does is prop up very bad schools with terrible outcomes. There's this, it's more or less a jobs program for teachers instead of focusing on student outcomes. So that's where all this federal money in education really goes to. But there is a success model. Right next door, there might be a charter school. And these charter schools uh, th that use for-profit vendors usually only get about $9,800 per student per year. Remember, public schools on average get $15,000 per student per year. And their, their, their educational outcomes are through the roof. So I know you say, well, you know, if you spend more money, education's going to have to be expensive. These, these uh, charter schools are showing us that education can be affordable and high quality. Yeah, Kenneth Shrub's joining us. I get into this conversation with our school choice friends um, often. Look, my, I've had kids that go to public school. I've had kids go to private school. I'm all for school choice. But you also point out there's areas where there, even if you have school choice on the ballot or in the law, there may not be another school to choose from. 91%, you raise it in the piece, 91% of all students are still going to go to public school. So the idea that, you know, this is one of those Twitter ain't real life kind of things and Facebook ain't the way reality is. We can talk about school choice. The reality is most kids are still going to go to public school in some form or fashion. So the idea that you can't do the one and ignore the other these things need to kind of go hand in hand. And I know there's the line out there about how, well, doing one always harms the other, and we can hash that out as well. Any kind of education reform really has to take both in. You're not going to replace the public school system with school choice. And I think that's something we need to address and be upfront about and then deal with the school, the public school system as it actually exists today. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes, it is. And I, I'd also like to maybe introduce a change of terms for you, a more 
honest term to use. We, we like to say, tr pretend like charter schools aren't public schools. They are public schools. Right. We should instead differentiate between union schools that exist for the benefit of teachers' unions, not the students, and charter schools. Then they all are public schools. So I'm a, I do support the public school system in as much as I support vastly increasing the number of charter schools that we allow for, shutting down these terrible, failing schools as soon as there are viable alternatives. We can't keep them open. Yeah. What do we do? That's the charter schools. What about private schools? Because you're going to get into an area. Look, for a long time in this country, most private schools, and most of them are religious of one stripe or another. That's just the reality of it. A lot of them wouldn't take any kind of federal money or federal subsidies because they were afraid of, you know, having some kind of control issues or what the money would be tied to, this sort of thing. That barrier seems to have broken down some. But if we're subsidizing private schools, we're going to have to start having a conversation of what we traditionally think of private schools. You're talking about terminology. That terminology may have to change a little bit as well, right? It may. Um, if you if you look at private schools, the reason that they're cost effective is because they only charge. They can only spend what parents are willing to pay. So that keeps the idea. They 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 can only teach what parents are willing to pay to have their kids learn. Uh, when you, as soon as you create these government subsidies, what do you think is going to happen? to these private schools. It's almost as if these Republicans all believe that they're going to maintain control of government forever and there's going to be no there's going to be no strings attached to when it comes to ideology or what you must or must not teach these kids. There will become a time when Democrats will take over these these state legislatures and use these use this money, use these subsidies to control the private schools and ruin them. Yeah, Kenneth Shrub joining us. Again, another, you know, adult conversation here beyond politics. When you have a private school and you're an administrator of a private school or you're on the board of a private school, the vast majority of your bulk time, unless you have some kind of really fat endowment is in fundraising. You're always scuttling to try to keep the fundraising going because, you know, you don't have it. If you introduce subsidies to loop back to kind of where we started with this. Now you've incentivized them to go after these subsidies because that takes look. Human nature is undefeated. These people that have to spend 80, 85, 90% of their time fundraising and doing all that, and that just wears you out. Let's all be honest. We've all had to do a kid fundraiser. Imagine doing that for your job, for your school, you know, 365. They're going to look at that as a godsend, and they're going to look at that as the easier path, and that's going to change how they do things. That gets us back to where we started with you talking about the system gets inflated. They're going to start moving their budgets to fit those subsidies directly. That'll change their costs. That's and now in a private school or a charter school system, you're going to the same problems with the public school where the whole thing's based around funding instead of education. Is that too harsh of a way to look at it? Not at all. You're just replicating the the problems of the union school system and the rest of the education system in our country. It's not. We don't want to do that again. up with us how do we break this cycle because again we just went over it the funding has overtaken the education side i don't think there's any way you could honestly argue that in america the funding is driving it because well they'll say well it's test yeah but the test scores are how you get your funding so it's still funding 
how do we break this cycle? Because obviously it takes money to do education. You have to fund it, but the funding is also, you know, it's almost like chemo in a, in a terminal cancer patient. The cure is killing you just a little less fast than the disease is, right? How do we right. break this cycle, man? Oh, that's a million dollar question. I have one small answer to that. I think there there is some truth to what uh, the current crop of school choicers say. And I think that if you, the average household for in California pays about $5,000 in taxes a year to the state. Uh, if you're not, if you have kids who are of public school age and you're not sending those kids to public school, you should be able to get the portion of your taxes back. The average household in California pays $5,000 a year in taxes to the state government. Meanwhile, California spends, let's just say $10,000 of state money per public school pupil. So if you send one, one of your kids to private to public school in California, you're already getting a net benefit of $5,000. I'm saying if you are sending your kids to anything outside of the public school system, you should be able to get what the state would have spent on your on your student deducted from your taxes up to however much you paid in taxes that means you won't get net five thousand dollars you just won't have to you will have the average household would probably have a net zero uh tax for the year because they're saving the state five thousand dollars this would be one way to give people some of their own money back but not more money than they actually did put in. It would be meaningful savings for many households, but it would be it wouldn't be universal in as much as proportionally scaled to what you put in. Yeah, Kenneth Shrupp with us. You ended your piece talking about something that I really want to talk about for a second. We, you know, we try to talk about not just covering the news, but how we talk about it ourselves, just on our social media and with our friends and family. You talk about how politicians on the right, they've, they've latched onto the buzzword of school choice and they've latched onto the buzzwords in this particular case of, you know, we're going to fund private education, this sort of thing. Give the average person who maybe doesn't know all the philosophy and all the ins and outs of the school debates and maybe doesn't know the full ins and outs of the education system. Give them one or two things like, hey, when they use a buzzword, ask them this question to get to the heart of it, whether they know what they're talking about or do they really understand what school choice is? Or are they just saying the words? Or when they talk about subsidizing private K through 12, what's one of the questions or what's one of the lines of thought that they should ask those people to find out if they're really being sincere or if they're just going along with the trend? Like you say, this, this is a way that it's, this is going to backfire on folks if it's just a willy-nilly thing. How do we talk about it better? I think a great question to ask people is, what are Democrats going to do to the problem? going to do to the program if they take power in our state? How how can the state use this to control our private schools or our kids' educations? What's your promise to the people of our state to say that this is how this program is going to remain unchanged forever? There's a there's a thing in policy. It's like, look, if it doesn't work really at least partially well for both sides, it's probably not a great policy to start with. Uh, that's probably a good rule of thumb here. Uh, Kenneth Shrub being with us. Let me ask you one last question about this. Kind of to loop it back to where we started, though. Why do we get so tunnel visioned with education? Because here we are again, like, you know, I understand the kid part of it and the parent part of it. And people just get nuts about their kids. You got to give people a little grace when they're talking about their kids because they just lose a little bit of reason. I understand that. 
why can we not see our education system as an education system? We so see it as think, a political thing. We see it as all this other stuff. What 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 is it with us that's wrong with us that we can't just look at the education system and just make it an education system? Because we think emotionally about everything. We want our education system to do everything that we as parents have sometimes failed to do. We want our education system to teach our children the values that we're supposed to be te actually be teaching them at home. We want the education system to teach our kids essential life skills that we don't that whether you know tax taxes accounting job skills uh citizenship all the things that society used to do outside of the school and government we're just offloading the responsibilities of everything onto the school system i'm talking with one of my friends some of my friends who do teach in the public school system if you're a teacher you have to do you, you're playing therapist you are you're, you're trying to help people deal with major issues inside their home people don't know anything about like the food they eat like it's 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 truly abysmal what's happened with education outside of the school so now we have to decide that everything that the school must do everything for us all at once and schools aren't made for that and they can't do that um so that's one that's one aspect of it cuz you you'll do anything for your kids but what if you don't know how to teach your kid anything? Parents are just vastly incompetent these days. They have so they don't have time to to learn how to do the things that parents used to be, used to do because they're working two jobs to afford ever increasing costs of housing and healthcare. Um, so that that's one aspect of it. Another, I think, is a lot of these school choice people care about the consequences. These are people who want politicians elected for just two-year cycles, and they'll climb their way up the ladder in politics and never have to deal with the consequences. They're going to have so much money that they don't care if their private school gets 50% more expensive. They'll be able to pay for it. They can afford to pay for pay past the consequences of their policies. All they want are votes. You know who the real swing voters in America are? Smart, suburban women. And if you're going up and you're telling them, I'm going to give you $10,000 for each of your students so that they can go to a better school because we supported locking down your schools, because we supported the destroying the curriculum with DEI and all sorts of nonsense, eliminating AP classes because AP is racist. You tell these people that you're just going to give them money and, to, and they'll forget about everything you did to them. Uh, it's a vote buying scheme. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Money corrupts everything, even education. Kenneth Shrupp with us. This is a conversation I think we're going to keep having over and over again. Look, my parents were both public school teachers for their entire careers. Um, you know, education is just something I've always been around. I've watched it change over the years. And of course, now as a parent and my kids are, you know, almost done with school, I've already got one out of college and the other, the youngest are in high school. COVID really broke people's perceptions of the education system. And I don't think we've really reckoned with folks how they've seen everything since then, because we told everybody in America what we thought about education, but I don't know that the education system realizes it just yet. Well, that's what the school board elections are for. Um, yeah. You know, pu public schools educate 91% of our students and we can't act like just sending them to private schools can solve the problem. Nope. And not everybody has that option. We need to keep that in mind because this gets elitist really, really, really quick. Not every, very, very few people can homeschool their kids. That's a gift if you're able to do that and do it well. 
Um, I don't have that gift. I learned that during COVID the hard way, um, even with the school support. So everybody can probably do a little better on their rhetoric on this thing as we try to find better ways forward. Kenneth Shrub, always enjoy talking. Uh, it won't be as long next time we get you back. I promise that. We already talked about that. We're going to get you back on again. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Oh, easiest way to follow me would be to go on Twitter and type in Kenneth Shrupp. Uh, Shrupp is spelled S-C-H-R-U-P-P, and I'll come right up. Thank you very much. Yeah, enjoy the chat. He's got a couple different pieces floating around right now. Check them out. We'll link to all this uh, and also to his page. Kenneth, it's a pleasure, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.